Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about the 2019 biopic, Tolkien. There are very few authors who have created such an immersive world in their writing as J.R.R. Tolkien. From The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings and beyond, Tolkien's writings have inspired countless others to dive into what might have inspired the man himself. What happened in Tolkien's life that he would write about the peace and quiet in the Shire and the industrial evils in Mordor? I wouldn't be surprised if you studied Tolkien's life at some point in school and in those classes learned that Tolkien fought in the Great War, World War I, and those experiences affected his writings. Surprisingly, while movies based on Tolkien's books have raked in billions of dollars and Amazon alone is set to have a $1 billion budget for their upcoming series based on Lord of the Rings, there haven't been many movies about Tolkien himself. That changed this year when director Dome Kawakowski released the movie simply called Tolkien and gave plenty of people a new look at the real life of J.R.R. Tolkien. As a huge Tolkien fan myself, I knew I wanted to cover the movie, but I also knew I wanted to do it right. So that's why today I'm excited to be joined by historian and Tolkien scholar John Garth. After all, John literally wrote the book on the topic. John's book is called Tolkien and the Great War, and it is the definitive biography on Tolkien's life during World War I. In fact, not only is it widely considered one of the best books overall about Tolkien's life and work, but it is the only biography of his World War I years. Before we bring John on the line, though, let's set up our game for this episode, Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Tolkien had to convince Jeffrey Smith's mother to let him publish Jeffrey's poems. Number two, Tolkien's mother did not die as unexpectedly as we see in the movie. Number three, Tolkien really was a part of a society called TCBS. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Now it's time to get John on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of the movie Tolkien. The beginning of the movie, Mabel Tolkien moves her two boys, Hillary and Ronald, or J.R.R. as we know him now, to Birmingham. But we never see a father in the movie. There's some dialogue that mentions that he's just gone. And the way that the movie phrases it, I'm assuming that he's he died. Um, but did the movie kind of get the family dynamic correct, basically, that there's uh, the two Tolkien boys... According to again to some dialogue, they were raised in Africa, but then moved to England and essentially raised by a single mother. Absolutely, yeah. So, so Tolkien was born in eighteen ninety two. In eighteen ninety four, came back to England because he could not uh, deal with the climate there. His mother thought it was bad for his health, so she brought both boys home 
him and his younger brother. And they left their father out there, earning the family living, managing a bank. But before they could return, he died of either rheumatic fever or typhoid fever. It's not quite certain which. Okay, so he was gone. He had passed away. He, he was gone. So the, the remaining family dynamic was very much Mabel, the mother, was the dominant leading figure uh, in those very, very formative early years. Was the movie correct in that Mabel, um, his mother, called him Ronald instead of John, his first name? People tended to call him either Ronald or John Ronald. He just didn't use John. After they move to Birmingham, we see that two Tolkien boys are raised by a single mother until she passes away. And I want to talk about that because in the movie, the way it happens, it's almost, it's out of the blue. And when I first saw this, I didn't expect it to happen right then. Like the two boys are wandering around town doing whatever it is that, that two boys are doing around town. And then they come home and, you know, hello, mother. And then Hillary goes further into the house and, and Ronald notices that his mom isn't moving. And then he just holds her and, and cries. It almost seems like, you know, they weren't, they weren't expecting it. It was out of the blue. It was very unexpected. This is, this is, this is like a, a Twitter summary of a, of a family tragedy. You know, what really happened was that um, she uh, fell ill um, in 1903. So when Tolkien was 11, and it went on for some time. The two boys were sent to stay with relatives elsewhere because she was in hospital. Um, when she came out of hospital, uh, she was uh, given somewhere to live in um, a retreat. We'll, we'll, I imagine, come to the question of the Birmingham Oratory and the priest who became the boy's guardian. But he helped her uh, with a place to live where she could convalesce from her illness um, but she died of tuberculosis late in that year. So uh, it was not without warning. It was not in urban Birmingham. And in fact, you know, the priest, Father Francis Morgan, was present. Um, and I believe her sister was present at the time of the death. I, I'm not aware that the boys were. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Ernan. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned Father Francis. Based on your um, answer right there, I'm assuming he was really in their lives. But I was curious what role he played because in the very beginning, they kind of moved from uh, a countryside that I don't remember the movie ever specifying where in the kind of the countryside they lived before Birmingham, but then he kind of helped give them a place to stay there. And then after Mabel passes away, he helps the boys move into a foster home with uh, somebody named Mrs. Faulkner in the movie. So what, what kind of role did uh, Father Francis play in the Tolkien family? Originally, uh, he arrived on their doorstep as part of his priestly duties, um, just keeping up uh, with the community, communicating with the local people. But this, if I remember rightly, was once they'd moved into Birmingham. So she, Mabel, would have been feeling somewhat isolated, single mother, two sons, in a new, more urban area. Not quite as urban and industrialised as the uh, area is depicted in the movie where it looks like something out of Peaky Blinders or, uh, you know, um, Charles Dickens. Um, so he, uh, Father Francis, provided her with uh, some kind of connection, I think, uh, with a sense of community, uh, the, the Birmingham Catholic community, and probably ways of making sense of the tragedy which had already struck, which was the loss of her husband and the boy's father. So they settled in and he remained a friend um, and became a closer friend. And by the time she had died, she had uh, asked him to become the boy's guardian. Now, there is, um, on record, and again we'll probably talk about this, a famous moment where uh, Father Francis forced uh, young Ronald Tolkien to relinquish something he cared deeply about, and yet uh, it would be false to think that Father Francis was a remote, austere, stiff figure, which I I think the film tends to give that impression somewhat. Uh, Tolkien called him my second father. Um, and was deeply grieved uh, when he died in the mid 1930s. He was a he was a very genial, funny man who liked to perform in amateur dramatics as a as a kid. Um, I think actually that's one thing that he had in common with Tolkien. Um, Tolkien loved that kind of thing too when he was at school. He was very good at that. He stole the show. Uh, in school school productions. I almost got that he was you know a, a fatherly figure where he was trying to be that person that he didn't have in his life anymore. So it's interesting that even though the movie obviously didn't get it 100% correct, but that he was there and that he was kind of filling some of that role. It's certainly in the, in the ballpark there. Um, there are more complications, and, and I don't blame the, the filmmakers for, for cutting to the chase. So, you know, before they moved into Mrs. Faulkner's, there were other places where, uh, first of all, they were lodged with an aunt, an actual relative, they were very, very unhappy there. Um, and it was only when Father Francis took the boys on holiday and they were able to spend some time together 
that it became clear to him that they were very unhappy in those lodgings. And so he moved them out. So he was a very caring, uh, caring man, yeah. That leads us then into uh, Mrs. Faulkner, because you mentioned her. So then she was also a real, um, a real part of their lives as well. Yeah, Mrs. Faulkner was the, the, the landlady uh, in Duchess Road in Birmingham. Um, and I suppose the most crucial encounter in Tolkien's life, which was with the woman he would later marry, uh, Edith Bratt, who was uh, three, th- three years older than him and uh, um, a talented and quite beautiful young woman, a pianist. And there's something in the film, an indication of the kind of problems she had where her talents were both appreciated and underappreciated by Mrs. Faulkner, who wanted her to play the piano at her soirees, but wouldn't approve of her practicing. So uh, Edith had been to a a school that specialised in music um, and had some reason to think that this this might take her somewhere, ever did. Yeah, I think I remember they were talking about that at one point. She went to one of of their um, club meetings, I think it was, and... She was talking about how she never gets to, she never gets to talk about music. She never gets to talk about this. She just practices, and she's just, she's just there with, with Mrs. Faulkner. She's just there, <laughs> but she doesn't really right, get to practice. Right. Right. Um, uh, yes, I, I think that that's an accurate sense, uh, portrayal of her sense of discontent at that stage. There's no evidence she actually met and spoke to the other members of the TCBS at that stage. Tolkien's Tolkien's school clique. But I suppose, you know, if you've got to dramatize these things, that's um, a, a logical way of doing it without expanding the cast too much. Sure. You got to fit it in somewhere, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And according to the movie, once Tolkien is sent to King Edward's school, we see that he is gifted with language. And we kind of get this first indication of it in the movie when uh, the, the teacher pronounces his name uh, Tolkien or something like that and... and um, Ronald corrects him, it's Tolkien. Uh, But then the rest of the class struggles with Chaucer, and Tolkien doesn't even need to read it. He just recites it. He does it very, very well. So was was he good at languages even before school at a young age? He um, was already inventing languages, he, he recalled, when he was seven or eight. Now, quite what level those languages were is an unknown. All the evidence suggests that they would have been nothing like the languages he invented later, for which, which helped him to become famous, languages of the Lord of the Rings. Because early on, he didn't have the same interests and expertise in languages that, that he developed. When he arrived at school... Uh, one of the first things he did, it seems, he, he had to start learning Greek when he was 10. And it inspired him to try to invent a language that captured the quintessence of Greek, the Greekness of Greek, the sounds, the characteristic sounds, the music of that language. And that's the kind of thing that Tolkien became very adept at um, and very passionate about. In, in fact, he was introduced to Chaucer uh, Middle English and, and, and to Old English by one of the school teachers at King Edward's school. So the, by implying that he already knew these things when he arrived at that school, uh, that's, that is indeed misleading. Obviously, now we know he was a, a master at creating languages. Do we know 
just kind of overall how many he created? This is one of those impossible questions in the sense that how do you define a whole language? Any attempt to map the extent of English, uh, obviously, is, is, is perpetually chasing a moving target, right? Uh, and there are enormous dictionaries trying to do that job. Now, Tolkien uh, invented two Elvish languages in great depth, and he invented a history of their development. They are related. He worked out exactly how they're related, how sound changes would develop one language or the other in certain directions. And they also carry the imprint of the culture that speaks them. And so those are very richly developed languages, and I don't think there's anything else like them in creative history. I, 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 you know, never mind Dothraki. You know, uh, these are just in a, in a league of their own. He sketched other languages that we have encountered in Lord of the Rings, the black speech of the orcs of Mordor, for example, or the the Huzdal of the dwarves. He sketched those, I think, very, very lightly. Really, they were just there to give some flavor to a culture. Just for the story's sake, but not necessarily to dive deep into the languages themselves. Right. Those are probably more on the level of, of you know, invented languages like, like, like Dothraki um, or uh, the Lapine rabbit speech of Watership Down, a 1970s novel about rabbits in the vein of Lord of the Rings, which I highly recommend. I'll have to check that one out. I can't say I've heard of that one. (laughs) Well, earlier you mentioned the kind of secret society, the clique that he was a part of. And so I'm assuming, since you you mentioned it earlier, that it was actually a thing. And according to the movie, it's called the Tea Club and Barovian Society, or TCBS. And it included uh, Tolkien, Robert Gilson, Christopher Wiseman, and Jeffrey Smith. Um... Was that kind of dynamic with those four friends pretty, I mean, from what you recall, pretty accurate as far as the movie is concerned and that there's kind of secret society wanting to whisk away and, and talk about various uh, literature and, and music and things? It's, it's a simplification uh, and an approximation. So uh, in the first instance, yes, this club was formed for trivial and social reasons um, and it was fun. And they brewed tea in the school library, which was strictly forbidden because, of course, they didn't have electric kettles in those days. So this presumably meant using a Bunsen burner or something, right? Starting a fire in the library. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and then outside school, I was there to the local department store, which was called Barrow's Stores. And so they gave themselves this jokey, mock pompous title, the Barovian Society. Right. Uh, that's that's the kind of atmosphere they they had. There were something like there was a vague membership, perhaps nine, perhaps 12, something around those numbers. And then this was in the very last year uh, uh, that Tolkien was at school. And then he went to Oxford and others went to Cambridge in the next few years. Oxford and Cambridge are the big places that you would go to from that kind of school to study at university level. The club, the TCBS, persisted during the next three years as a a social group where old friends would get together and meet and essentially crack jokes. Now, when the war broke out in 1914, the dynamic did change massively because I think uh, Tolkien and Wiseman in particular felt the need 
to come together with closest friends and talk meaningfully. So they kicked out all the people that they saw as hangers-on, and that left just the four that you've named. Smith being a relative latecomer, incidentally. Uh, he, he wasn't there in the original group any, at all. And under the shadow of war, they became... They were idealists. They thought that the world had run into obvious and terrible problems. And they thought that the problems of the world were reflected in its art, in its literature, its drama, and so on, that, that these things were in decline. And they thought that they, collectively, might be able to make a difference for the better with their own creative work. And Tolkien was the spearhead of all that, and I think probably the inspiration of it all. So at the outbreak of that war, he started writing the very first material that we can relate to what became Middle Earth. And those three friends of his essentially became the first Middle Earth fans. Now, one of the sad things about the movie, and I, I don't know whether this was because of copyright reasons, but I suspect it was, is that there's no genuine flavour of the things that Tolkien was creating at the time. So that, you know, you could have had scenes where he was reading aloud from some of the stuff uh, about Middle Earth that mentions recognisable names, but they, they didn't do that. Well, there, wa there was one point, and this was uh, something I wanted to touch on briefly, a point where we saw Tolkien studying old books in the library. This is after he started uh, studying under Professor Wright, um, so I, it would be at, at Oxford. But we see as he's he's writing in his notebook, we constantly see that he's writing in his notebook, and uh, we can see two words that he writes, Feely and Keely, which, of course, are recognizable names. Right. So, so what you've actually got there, you've got some sleight of hand in that Feely and Keely are not names invented by Tolkien. They're names from, from old Norse literature. So, and and he, he almost certainly did encounter those names at that time as an undergraduate, possibly slightly earlier at school, along with names like Thorin and Dwalin and Balin and so on. These are all names uh, from, from Norse mythology. They found their place in his creativity, not then, but when he was writing The Hobbit, which he began in the late 1920s, so many years later. So he would have had cause to be writing that down as an undergraduate, but not for those reasons. So there, there, is, there is a real problem for the filmmaker who wants to make everything connect up to show, you know, the synapses leaping, to show connections between the experience and the famous stuff that Tolkien wrote. And that severe problem is that there was a significant gap, years and years, between these experiences, which are, yeah, really vital and formative, and the famous things that, that Tolkien published in his lifetime, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Well, before we go into that and kind of into the, the war itself, too, we've touched on it briefly. We talked about Father Francis and we talked briefly about, about Edith. But like you mentioned earlier, Father Francis did suggest that he has nothing more to do with Edith, essentially, at that point, because Ronald's going to go off to Oxford and Edith ends up getting engaged to somebody else. But then, and this is, this is what I'm, I'm curious about. And then as, as Tolkien goes off to war, he runs into Edith and Edith talks about her fiancé, but then the, they kiss, they express their love for each other, and it almost seems like Edith just forgot the person that she was engaged with and, and 
come back to me, live. And, you know, it's, it's one of those, obviously, uh, Hollywood moment. <laughs> um, but I was just curious kind of how, how that dynamic played between um, Ronald and Edith. I, I think if that had actually happened in their real lives, then a movie would have been made of it a lot earlier. <laughs> Because it plays into Hollywood so nicely. I mean, the the scene of their reconciliation, they're out in the street and they end up embracing, kissing. And I've seen that scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I've seen that scene at the end of um, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. We know what playbook that is out of, right? Um, so what actually happened was radically different. And I suppose as a biographer, this is one of my primary gripes with the movie but also, frankly, with the habits of uh, filmmakers whenever they announce that, you know, this film is inspired by a true story, right? Um, here's what happened. Uh, Father Francis, oh, well, he didn't suggest, he strictly told uh, Tolkien that he must not communicate with Edith Bratt at all. And that meant three years before he became an adult, which in, in those days meant turning 21. It meant he was no longer his guardian's responsibility and he was free to do as he wished. At that point, he wrote to Edith and renewed his declaration of love to her and she replied immediately saying, I'm engaged to be married. Now, in the movie, Tolkien goes off, gets drunk starts spouting an invented language. This attracts the attention of Professor Joe Wright and Tolkien switches to the English undergraduate course and so on and so on. And then it rolls on and the war breaks out. In, in reality, what happened was, yes, he switched to the English course at about that same time, but there's no connection with the Edith situation. He didn't get drunk and go ranting at night in Elvish or whatever it was. He wrote her a letter uh, said, I'm coming to meet you. He went and met her and they walked and talked for an afternoon. And by the end of the day, she had committed to him. This was 1913. The war broke out in 1914. When he left on the troop ship, it was 1916. In, uh, the end, at the end of May, start of June, um, they were already married by that time. They married in March 1916. So you can see that there's been some creative redistribution of information there. Just slightly, but I guess it's not as fun to see on screen somebody writing a letter. <laughs> no, but you know, I'm, personally, now I, I'm not a filmmaker. Obviously, uh, if if I were a filmmaker, I wouldn't be sitting writing books, which don't make as much money. <laughs> Some of the things that Tolkien pulled off were quite extraordinary, uh, and I think simply the idea of turning up and 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 talking someone out of a marriage would be a challenge for a screenwriter, but a really you know fascinating one to my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would be quite a bit of dialogue that it would be really hard to do, but if a filmmaker could pull that off, it would be that much more impressive. One of the things that the movie does, which I find um, strange, but you know, maybe it's one of those formula things, is that it steals from Tolkien a lot of his spirit and verve and drive and self, uh, an extraordinary conviction in himself the kind of thing that prompted him to get in straight back in touch with her and then go and talk her around. Um, so, you know, to, to replace that with going out and getting drunk and, and, and ranting in the middle of the college at night, you see exactly what I mean. And there are other examples of this. It's 
good, I think, that the movie has tried to engage with Tolkien's passion for languages and for inventing languages. And yet, you know, the key scene when he talks about it um, and how it relates to storytelling, it's Edith who is leading the conversation and coaxing it out of a very reticent and reluctant Tolkien. Of course, we weren't there. We're not flies on the wall. Uh, we, we can't know whether anything remotely like that happened. But it just seems to me to detract from the personality of Tolkien as I understand him. You mentioned earlier uh, Professor Joseph Wright. When I was watching the film, it seemed like he was very much kind of pushing him to, you know, it's more than just words. It's, more, you know, it's the sound. It's, it's, a, it's a culture. It's more than just words that you speak. Uh, who was Professor Wright, and did he kind of have that much of an effect on, on Tolkien's love of languages? Oh, he did, absolutely. Uh, so he was, he was a phenomenal figure. He was born from, from very working-class circumstances and taught himself to read, I think, by, by reading the Bible upside down uh, as it was sitting on someone else's lap. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, so he'd be facing the person who had the Bible open on their lap, and, it, and he was learning to read upside down that way. And he learned a phenomenal number of languages. And if you were a language student in those days, a student of medieval languages, which was a vital part of language study in those days, the odds were you would be using books that were written by Joseph Wright and Tolkien had. So while he was still at school, he had got himself Wright's Gothic Primer you know, a beginner's teach yourself Gothic. Gothic was a language that became extinct in the early Middle Ages, but Tolkien loved the sound of it. And he tried to invent a language that captured the Gothicness of Gothic. Now, he encountered Wright early in his Oxford student career. So that, again, the, this idea that Wright discovered him midway through his Oxford time is, is, is not true. Tolkien became a friend of the family and would go round for Sunday dinner with, with Joseph Wright. And Joseph Wright and his wife, Elizabeth Mary Wright, they both knew a lot about folklore as well. So she had written a book that came out about language and folklore, came out while Tolkien was a, an Oxford undergraduate and was going around for Sunday dinner. And they, I'm sure, would have spoken with Tolkien about that and that idea that language and legend are entwined together would have been an undercurrent. Tolkien said that he personally, Tolkien, made that discovery that language and legend were interdependent when the First World War broke out. Um, so I think probably to give him due credit, it certainly felt like his discovery to him. And that's what propelled him to take one of his invented languages and create a people to speak it and a world in which it was to be spoken, the elves and Middle-earth. So much creativity. It's so fascinating to me. I'm very, very impressed. And it uh, speaks to why it's, it's still, we're still talking about it today. <laughs> yes, it does indeed. Uh, although I would say that Tolkien's real life and the, the dimensions of sadness and tragedy and loss weighed up against, you know, the joys of friendship and growing up in a small country village in England and so on. All of that was his work, um, the human touch, if you like, you know, the, the, the thing that gets you in the heart. Well, the movie kind of plays on some of that, too. It, it doesn't really come out and show, like you mentioned earlier, it doesn't really come out and show specific characters from Middle Earth. 
But there's like one scene where Tolkien is is on the battlefield and he sees fire and it's it's a dragon breathing fire and then you know it it turns out it's German flamethrowers and we also you know see maybe like a massive shadowy figure in the sky that the movie doesn't say it but it's the necromancer or Sauron right so it it kind of implies those things and I know this is kind of going to be kind of a loaded question but can you kind of give overview of some of Tolkien's experiences during World War One that might have influenced some of the characters or, or places in his stories later on? That's a huge question. So, uh, you know, I give, I give, I give uh, hour-long talks on that subject, sometimes longer. <laughs> the first and most obvious and immediate effect is that straight after the Battle of the Somme, uh, Tolkien sat down and wrote a story called The Fall of Gondolin. Uh, in which Gondolin is is a fabulous, beautiful city of the elves, which uh, who represent craft and skill um, and beauty, uh, and it's destroyed by a ravenously materialistic tyrant who is, in terms of Lord of the Rings, he's actually Sauron's boss. Who by the by the time the Lord of the Rings happens, this figure Morgoth has has gone off stage. So he's essentially Tolkien's Satan figure. And he sends an invading army to destroy this elven city. And leading the assault are things that Tolkien describes as monsters or beasts or dragons. And yet he describes them very unlike uh, the way he describes, say, Smaug, the dragon in The Hobbit. These dragons, they are metallic. They roll over things, over obstacles. Some of them open up and troops climb out. And it seems to me that it can be no coincidence that, given that this is written in, I think, early 1917, no coincidence that in September 1916, so just a very few months earlier, Britain's secret weapon, the tank, unleashed in the Battle of the Somme, uh, a device for rolling over things, for crushing for carrying troops inside it. And the reaction to that, that secret weapon was to, to compare it to monsters. They compared it, the newspapers and, and gossipers uh, and soldiers uh, compared it to historic monsters, mythical monsters. So Tolkien was, was adapting that point, I think, very clearly. Now, in other terms, I think when Tolkien's talking about subterranean scene like in Moria in the Lord of the Rings um, where the whole thing is accompanied by the sound of some kind of signals drums beating well first of all Tolkien was a signals officer right so that was his job and whenever you see you see signals in the Lord of the Rings um, you can see that that he's it's part of the fabric of war as he knew it now these drum beats in Moria, it's, he says it's as if the whole of the labyrinthine tunnels have been turned into one vast drum. So these things are visceral. And I think that Tolkien there is, is tapping into his memory of the fear of sitting inside dugout, a hole in the ground, while artillery is bursting overhead, right? And equally, you know, the idea of, of tunnels where the enemy might come around the, the corner and thrust a spear at you, well, he lived that, you know. 
Uh, at any point uh, in his four months on the Somme, in, in those trenches, German soldiers could have appeared with their bayonets and been thrusting them at you. And then, of course, you know, in, in more abstract terms, we've got the idea of heroes developing from, you know, not very brave, not very imaginative people into people who can take the weight of responsibility and do the necessary deed, no matter how terrifying. Tolkien played his cards close to his chest in terms of his influences, but he did say once something very telling about Sam Gamgee. And it depended who he was talking to, how frank and open he was about this kind of thing. He said to a fellow veteran of the First World War, my Sam Gamgee, as you recognise, is a reflection of the privates and my bat that I knew in the First War and recognised as so far superior to myself. Now, a Batman is, is a term for, uh, obviously not a superhero in this instance, but uh, an officer's servant. So the soldier, and he was a fully active soldier as well, uh, who would assist the officer with you know, running errands, um, making sure he got the food he needed, <laughs> shining his shoes, doing, doing that kind of stuff. So I really quite like the, the Frodo and Sam uh, relationship. And that's where you have the most explicit acknowledgement of influence from the First World War. Now, in, in terms of the movie, we see Tolkien with another soldier, who we are to assume is his Batman, his servant, um, and they call him Sam. Um, we don't know if Tolkien's Batman, it sounds like he had several at, at various points in the war. We don't know if any of them were called Sam. Uh, I, I doubt that Sam Gamgee is a portrait of a single man. More of an amalgamation of just kind of the, the role itself, kind of telling of the role, not a single person. That's absolutely right, yeah. And then there's the landscape, the landscape of the Dead Marshes in The Lord of the Rings, where, you know, the travellers go through and they see dead faces under the water. Um, this was something that you could see in the Battle of the Somme once it rained in the autumn and waterlogged and the corpses that have been unrecoverable because they were out in no man's land uh were, were ended up lying there un, underwater and thanks thanks for sharing all those those are um fascinating to kind of see how uh, the experiences during world war one would have would have impacted the the stories themselves uh one thing i did want to touch on kind of circling back to to the movie we see that tolkien gets sick in the trenches and it's kind of a it's kind of bouncing back and forth. So the movie almost starts off with this and in, in the trenches, and then bounces back and forth between kind of flashbacks almost. But in World War One, while he's in the trenches, this, there's a soldier with him, Sam Hodges, who they kind of go off to try to find Jeffrey Smith. But then at one point, Hodges goes off and and go, tries to find Smith by himself, and Tolkien is left there ill in the trenches and it almost looks like he's just left there to die like he's 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 almost going to die did he actually get sick in the trenches no <laughs> completely fictional nice he got he got sick after the trenches so he he fell sick uh he, he was involved in um tolkien's final military operation was in october 21st of october 1960 uh the italian attacked and seized an enemy trench. It was 
very cold. Uh, no doubt he was already susceptible uh, to illness at that time because he'd been out there for four months. Um, the living conditions were, were pretty poor. The food wasn't great. Uh, most of all, there were lice everywhere. So the lice would infest your uniform um, and you'd spend time sitting around the fire trying to pop the lice in the, that lived in the seams of your uniform. They were called chats. That was chat was the dialect name for lice um, because soldiers would call this chatting. They'd sit around the fire chatting. This is where we get our word for conversation, chatting, right? Language creation in action. <laughs> I like our version of chatting now rather than what that must have been like. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was he, he, along with the rest of the battalion, were then withdrawn from the trenches, went into a few days of rest and parades where they were awarded various they were congratulated by generals and whatever, and Tolkien fell ill then. So he just made it through, and then he fell ill. So the idea that he was suffering some kind of fever dream of whatever's going on in the movie, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. The idea that he wanted to find his friend Smith at various points was certainly true. The idea that he would have deserted his post as a battalion signals officer to do so is certainly not true, and he would have been, goodness knows, how severely disciplined for doing that. You know, they executed people for uh, for desertion of posts, you know. Not, not something he would have done. No. So, so you know, the idea of Tolkien seeing these visions, I don't, I don't personally think that's the way his creativity worked. Maybe, maybe, I mean, he did, the, what he succumbed to was trench fever. So there were periods, especially during the the next few weeks and on and off it was a chronic that is a recurrent condition on and off through the remainder of the war he ran into periods of fever and for someone very imaginative of course that that would have meant he was having extremely vivid dreams and who knows what he dreamt about but his creativity was was also a matter of conscious imagination and crafting well one thing that kind of towards the end of the movie Tolkien is in the in the hospital and Edith is there this is after his his illness, but she delivers the bad news that Jeffrey passed away. Uh, he was killed, as well as uh, Robert Gilson. He was hit, and he was also killed. But then later we find out that uh, Christopher Wiseman survived, but then uh, Tolkien later says something that, you know, some of us who survived have other sorts of scars. Uh, what What actually happened to those four? I mean, we know, obviously, Tolkien survived, but did uh, Gilson and Smith die in World War I and, and Wiseman survive? Yes, that's all accurate, like everything else really. You know, you've, you've got the ingredients and they've t- been tipped into something and then given a really, really, really thorough stir. So Rob, Rob Gilson died on the first day of the Somme, leading his men over the top into no man's land. Tolkien learned of that from Smith, and that was a terrible shock, which Tolkien took quite some time to process. And he wrote a letter to Smith uh, where he said, you know, honestly, I think the TCBS is ended because that idea that they could have a common purpose seemed to him to be shattered by the fact that, well, one of them had already been killed. So how could, how could that be? Smith survived the whole of the Battle of the Somme. And then after it was over, um, he was hit. He was way behind the lines, like four miles away from the, from the enemy organising a football match for his men. A, sh- a stray shell burst near him, an artillery shell. A fragment got into his thigh, and he came down with gangrene, and he died three days later. Wiseman, 
uh, is the one who told Tolkien about this. Uh, Wiseman wrote him a letter about it. He'd seen it in the papers. Wiseman had a happy war. He was uh, in the Navy. He was way away from the trenches. He spent most of his time in the Orkney Islands north of Scotland, which was a big naval base at that point, uh, training young men for the Navy. And he enjoyed himself. He, he certainly didn't come out of it uh, silenced and traumatised, which the film seems to imply. And uh, honestly, this, this comes to my, my second big gripe with the movie. And, I, and probably this, this would apply to Hollywood adaptations. And, and perhaps Hollywood is too narrow a term. Um, screen adaptations, per se. So great liberties are taken. And when the facts are least generally known the liberties are greater because the stakes seem lower to the filmmakers. So obviously, if the filmmakers had said something woefully inaccurate about Tolkien, like he'd lost a leg or something, then, of course, the f- anyone who knows anything about Tolkien knows he had two legs. They couldn't do that, right? But they certainly have rewritten the personalities of Rob Gilson and G.B. Smith. Smith in reality, was quite an acerbic, funny, forthright character who took no nonsense from anyone. Very, very clever indeed. Rob Gilson was sociable, but extremely gentle. I mean, his idea of a great night was to sit down and do some tapestry work. And I think they've given, given his personality to Smith. And that's a shame, I think. And I, th- I think it's a shame because these were real people. These were real people who aren't, aren't able to speak up for themselves now. And as a biographer, I, I sat and I spent a lot of time reading their letters, the letters they wrote Tolkien. In Gilson's case, I read all the letters that he wrote home from the trenches to his family and to his sweetheart. And it was incredibly moving. And doing that, you feel as if you're getting to know these people as a friend. You know, you feel, you feel kind of intimately connected with them while being very conscious that you'd never actually be able to stand up with them in conversation because they were so much better educated (laughs) (laughs) than you are, than I am, right? Um, Yeah, I think it's a great shame to take the second league characters in history and just use them willy-nilly in whatever way you like. And this goes also for Smith's mother. So uh, in the film, we see Smith's mother is, in British terms, an upper-middle-class lady a very well-educated, very well-spoken, who has little sympathy with her son's desire to be a poet. This was what Smith wanted to do. And Tolkien has to beg her to let him edit Smith's poetry and publish it. In fact, Ruth Smith, poor woman, she lost Geoffrey in December 1916 and his older brother Roger in January 1917, her two sons. Um, she later went blind. Um, she was desperate for her son to be allow- allowed to speak. She asked Tolkien if he would edit her son's poems immediately. It was her first thought, what can we do to make sure that Geoffrey's legacy lives? So I think those things are a pity. But I mean, understandably, filmmakers are, are thinking about box office receipts rather than pleasing you know, the bloke who wrote the book Tolkien and the Great War. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I can see how maybe from a filmmaker's perspective, they're trying to, I mean, the movie is called Tolkien, so they're trying to 
push him to be kind of the driver behind a lot of the storyline, even if in reality he wasn't. Well, yeah, but it, it's certainly true that he he basically edited Wiseman and Tolkien edited Smith's poetry. I don't understand honestly why it's it's better to to show conflict between him and Smith's mother over that. Yes, I suppose the filmmakers will probably, probably say it's better to show conflict anywhere you can because conflict is story. I guess I would say if they removed that element, then they'd have more screen time for developing other ideas. Well, they, I don't, to my knowledge, they didn't even mention that her other son passed away, and that certainly could have been something added to it that would have been a different sort of conflict, right, where she's battling those emotions of losing two two children within a span of uh, just a few months. Yeah. Is there is there anything in the movie that you just wish that they didn't, they just completely omitted from Tolkien's life that you wish that they had included? The key thing that I think they miss out is the fact that Tolkien started writing straight away, spurred on by his war experiences. There was a very common phenomenon where soldier writers had a fairly productive time during the war and there was a struggle to find a ways of, of talking about this very new kind of war. But then there was a silence that followed the war and it lasted approximately a decade. And it was broken by books like All Quiet on the Western Front, which gave a very bleak and unheroic depiction of the war. So there was a kind of silence, and you might say that all those writers were were silenced by their experiences. Tolkien started writing immediately and pretty much kept it up as, as far as he could in between being a father of a growing family and an extremely ambitious and successful young academic. The problem is that for the, for the film writer, filmmakers to show that, they would have been talking about stuff that was not The Hobbit, was not Lord of the Rings. Um, and as I said before, they maybe had to think about copyright stuff too. I think the overriding impression that we get is that Tolkien, like the kind of the cliche of the First World War uh, soldier, was silenced by trauma. When in fact, I think that in all probability, creative drive helped him come to terms with his experiences and deal with whatever trauma he felt. And I have to add, there's no diagnosis that Tolkien suffered from war trauma. It's understandable that he, it sounds like, you know, before the war, he was expressing, you know, with languages and, and coming up with, with languages and, and kind of building that, that backstory there. But then it's hard to imagine. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in something like, you know, the Great War. And so it, it's almost impossible to imagine how you could come out of that and not be not be so heavily influenced by it and not have that be uh, you know, if if you're a writer and if you're if you're that's languages and, and that that's what Tolkien's passion is, that's gonna be how he gets that out, like how he tries to deal with that. I could definitely understand how that would be the case. Absolutely. I mean I, I think when people are being helped to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which is 
you know, our current name for what they used to call shell shock, creativity can play a really helpful part, you know, music, craft and so on. And I think, yeah, that's, that's what Tolkien was partly driven by, driven by his demons, if you like. Um, he, he sometimes referred to his, his creativity as a way of exercising nightmares. One last question I had as far as the movie is concerned, because at the very end, it it implies very heavily that the the TCBS was more than a brotherhood, was more than friends. They were a fellowship, which to me is like, okay, well, then, then the TCBS was kind of like the fellowship of the ring that what were the, the good guys making it through all this, the the evils of World War One was the TCBS the inspiration for the Fellowship of the Ring? So there are four hobbits in The Lord of the Rings. There are four members of the TCBS, and it's a very logical question to ask uh, whether those you know specific people inspired the specific hobbits. And I think the answer to that is probably no. I can't identify and, uh, and i've read everything that you know is is on record that these pe- these people ever wrote down um i can't really identify you know particular markers that would connect one with with any any one of the hobbits and in who is uh you know a rustic uh, working class a gardener just doesn't fit into the tcbs social class whatsoever i think the way it worked is that tolkien knew what it felt like to have dear, dear friends who were somewhere else in the theatre of war and to wonder what was going on with them and to be clinging on to the hope that they were still alive and well. Of course, if he'd been a more ruthless and realist writer in the kind of modernist way, he would have killed some of those hobbits to match that experience more fully. The fact that he didn't, however, I think is probably a reflection of, of the impact of those deaths on him. So it's great to see a movie that reaches out to people who aren't big readers of nonfiction so that they can have the door flung open to the experiences that helped inspire Tolkien's creativity. So his First World War experiences, his early friendships, his relationship with the woman who became his wife, and the film is obviously made with passion. It's made with considerable craft, um, especially for a film with a relatively low budget. It's quite amazing what they put on screen. It's very beautiful to look at. It's sensitively act- acted. I hope, above all, obviously, that it, it does make the people who see it want to find out more um, so that they can then learn the true story of how those experiences worked and affected his writings. Very well said. That's something that really one of the reasons why I started this particular podcast, kind of going into some of that because of, you know, authors and biographers such as yourself that have done so much fantastic work and people just assume that, oh, the movie is correct and this is this is what happened. And so I, I think it's great to be able to pull open your book and dive into it in much more depth and, and learn the truth. Right. And there's a little bit more, which is this. I love some films that I know are very inaccurate. So Amadeus, about the life of Mozart, and Lawrence of Arabia. These are, these are hugely powerful films. They're works of art. I think they stand up extremely well. If I were um, a diehard Mozart fan or, or a 
Lawrence of Arabia biographer, I might have big issues with them. I don't know. I don't know their lives so well. And there, there are many films, Theory of Everything, Stephen Hawking, and the um, Alan Turing film. Uh, Imitation Game. The Imitation Game, um, where I watch the movie, I enjoy it. Uh, oh, Bohemian Rhapsody, there's another one. Uh, and then I, I go to Wikipedia <laughs> and I... <laughs> And I see, oh, oh, so that didn't happen. Oh, so that didn't happen. Oh, oh, why did they do that? You know, because to me, real life is compelling. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a biographer. Yeah, no, that's exactly those. uh, I've uh, covered Bohemian Rhapsody and Imitation Game and and some of those. Yeah. So that's essentially why I started this podcast was to try to dig into that more, but also to to open the door more to to connect between beyond Wikipedia, you know, beyond, you know, into uh, people such as yourself who have done such amazing work and just dive into, into depth and allow people to, to see that and, and know who that is and, and pick up your books and read a lot more about that and, and uh, dive into what really happened. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm a, I'm a huge Tolkien fan, so this it's been an absolute honor to chat with you about his life. And I'm sure we're we're only scratching the surface, and I know you have multiple fantastic books. So to anyone who wants to dig deeper, can you give a, a brief overview of your books and where they can learn more about your work? Well, if you go to my website, johngarth.co.uk, you'll find information about my first book, Tolkien and the Great War, The Threshold of Middle-Earth which really is a slice of biography. It traces what Tolkien did during those key years when he was inventing his mythology, which was when the First World War was raging, and it draws connections, and I think very thought-provoking and nuanced uh, connections uh, between those experiences and what he wrote, the kinds of things that actually a, a film really struggles to convey. That book won the uh, the Mythopoeic Award for Scholarship in 2004. So this is this is an award given out by the Mythopoeic Society that uh, looks at fantasy fiction in in general, uh, but Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and their friends in in particular. Later on, I wrote a kind of codicil, uh, an appendage to that book, which is a small book called Tolkien at Exeter College, where I, I look at Tolkien's time as an undergraduate at Oxford, which had been something that I had to kind of skim over fairly lightly in Tolkien and the Great War because of that book's, the first book's focus on the TCBS, who were not with Tolkien at his undergraduate college. And then next year, 2020, will be published Tolkien's Worlds, um, which is about the real places that inspire Tolkien and also the influences on his invented places. And that's coming out in Britain from a publisher... Uh, called White Lion, um, and in the U.S. from Princeton University Press. That one sounds very interesting based on, especially a lot of the discussion that we've had so far, kind of some of the real places that inspired that. Um, I'll make sure to include links to those all in the show notes. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you. Good to speak to you. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre, which, in the case of a chat like today, just means that I came up with the questions and then got to learn alongside you from John Garth. And fortunately, this chat was lice-free. <laughs> Thanks again to John for his time and sharing his knowledge behind the real life 
of J.R.R. Tolkien. There's so much more that we didn't get the chance to cover on this episode, so many more details about Tolkien's life that John covers in his books. As he mentioned, they are the critically acclaimed and award-winning biography called Tolkien and the Great War, as well as Tolkien at Exeter College. Oh, and you can also pre-order his new book on Amazon right now, which is scheduled to come out in 2020. So if you're listening to this at the time of release, it's not quite out yet, but you can pre-order it. It's called Tolkien's Worlds, The Places That Shaped the Writer's Imagination. I'll include links to John's site and all those books in the show notes for this episode and on the page for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And while you're there, don't forget to request some of your own favorite movies that you would like to see covered on a future episode. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Tolkien had to convince Jeffrey Smith's mother to let him publish Jeffrey's poems. Number two, Tolkien's mother did not die as unexpectedly as we see in the movie. Number three, Tolkien really was a part of a society called TCBS. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number three. That is true. The movie only shows four members of TCVS, and there were more members, as John mentioned, but as John mentioned, the four in the movie were the key ones that stayed in the society after other non-serious members were kicked out. That brings us to number one. That is the lie. As we learned, it was Mrs. Smith who asked Tolkien to edit Jeffrey's poetry as a way of keeping her son's memory alive. That means number two is also true. As John explained, when Mabel Tolkien passed away, all signs pointed to it being an illness that gradually got worse over time. In other words, it's not like a young Tolkien came into the house one day to find his mother having passed away unexpectedly, like we see in the movie. And that brings us to an end of this episode. I'd like to thank John Garth for coming on the show one more time. I learned a ton from him, and I hope that you did too. Now, before we go, there's one last thing I would like to do. I've never heard a podcast share these stats for each episode, but I'm a big fan of being as open as possible. So I figure, why not? Maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free a little more. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this episode that you heard today. Today's episode took a total of 20 hours to create and cost $22.91 in out-of-pocket expenses. And it's probably worth pointing out that time and cost is only my time for this one episode, so that it not include the countless hours of my guests' time researching the subject matter that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the website and things like that. Don't forget you can keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com support. And as a way of saying thank you, 
you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to this story you heard today, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I, I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time for the last hour or so, and I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>